Joshua chapter 6. The title for this message this morning is When God's Plans Seem Strange. When it seems strange. Now, I imagine that most of you in the auditorium know the story of Joshua. You, you know the Battle of Jericho. It's probably something that maybe your kids know. Maybe you even have enacted it as a kid. Um, maybe like made some uh, cardboard boxes in, in uh, uh, Sunday school and as the wall. And maybe you had some Israelites march around the wall. And then after the, the six, seven days, knock the, knock the wall down. Um, but if, you ever, if you've ever looked at this text for any length of time, then you know that there are some things that are strange. And if you dig into the text, you come away like I do with all these why questions. Well, why this? Well, why that? Well, why this way, God? Well, why not this? Or why not that? But what I want you to remember today is that the real battle that the Israelites faced was not the city of Jericho. The real battle they faced was their hearts. That was the real battle that was fought. The battle the Israelites faced was not the city of Jericho. It was the hearts of the people of God. That was the real battle. Would they believe that God could do what he said, as strange as it was? Would they risk public humiliation if the walls didn't come down? Can you imagine what would have happened? They shouted, and the walls stayed up, and they looked like fools. Can you imagine? Would they do what seemed absurd in order for God to show them he can do the impossible. You know, God desires for us to have an active and a living faith. And many people tend to think that living by faith means waiting for 100% certainty. But that almost never happens. Faith is, is wavering between belief and unbelief, doubt and assurance, hope and despair. And then finally, with great hesitance, with our heart in our hands, we step out and we act on it. If you were waiting for 100% certainty, I don't think you'd ever step out in faith because nothing can be 100% certain. I think of in the New Testament book of Acts, Paul's traveling on his second missionary journey. And he feels like the Spirit is leading him up north, up into Asia Minor. And he tries to go up one time, and the text says the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go. So he stops, he goes a little further, and then he tries again for a second time to do the same thing. And the Holy Spirit says, no again. Later when they arrive at Troas, Paul has a vision in the night. And a man from Macedonia is begging Paul and saying, come south, come preach to us. The point is that Paul was living by faith, okay? He was moving by faith, taking a step of faith. His first two decisions of where to take the gospel were denied. But then God redirects his path to Macedonia. See, living by faith means believing on the acting part. It means taking a step of faith no matter how small, how uncertain, how hesitant, or how scared you might be. God told the Israelites that the walls of Jericho would come tumbling down. But they still had to do the marching around. They still had to. Now, as we look at this text today in Joshua chapter 6, in lieu of a, of a formal outline, I'm just going to give you several observations from the text. And from these observations, there's lots of application that we can make to our lives. So I want you to follow with me as I read this story. If you're not familiar with it, then listen closely. If you are, listen closely still. Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. 
none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given you the city of Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, and you men of war, and you shall go around the city once. And you shall do this six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Verse 6, Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord advanced and blew trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So we had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around at once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord. While the priests continued blowing the trumpets, and the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did this six days. Aren't you glad the scripture didn't tell us six times? Verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they arose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And on that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now there shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Verse 18. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take all the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, and her mother, her brothers, and all she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Verse 26. Then Joshua charged them at this time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn son, and with his youngest son he shall set up its gates. 
So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Now, as we look at this text from Joshua chapter 6, this narrative, I want to give you, in lieu of seven times around the city, I want to give you seven observations from this text, and we'll move quickly through them. First of all, and this should be in your sermon notes, I think they put it in the, uh, uh, on the app, so if it's, pull up the app, it's there, all the sermon notes are there. But the first thing you can write down, the first observation, is that the opening victory of the conquest would be entirely the Lord's doing. The opening victory of the conquest would be entirely the Lord's doing. And as strange as it might seem, this battle plan was extremely important for, for, for one main reason. It was God's plan. That was the main reason. You know, Joshua had already sent some spies out to do some reconnaissance. In fact, earlier in Joshua chapter 2, he sends out spies to spy out the land. They come back. They bring a report back to Joshua. And I'm sure I guarantee that they already have a battle plan. Remember those two spies who went out and they go to Rahab's house and Rahab protects them? And then they send them on back home. And when they come back home, they see Joshua and Joshua says, what happened? And they tell him what happened. What's the land look like? It looks like this, this, and this. And I guarantee that Joshua goes to his leaders and he starts formulating a battle plan. How can we best take this city? This is a, this is a hard city to take. There are two walls that surrounded Jericho, an outer wall that was six feet thick and an inner wall that was 12 feet thick. Both walls were 20 feet high. And there was a spring that went underneath the wall into the city. So they had a constant supply of water. How in the world are we supposed to take this city when they have all this fort, when they have all this, these walls, the spring of unending supply of water supplies? So they started to develop a plan. They started to think, how can we take this city? And by the way, that's not a lack of faith on Joshua's part. That's just being a good leader and a good military commander. However, when God tells Joshua his plan for Jericho, Joshua doesn't say, Lord, I have, a, I have a better plan. I think it will work better. And when he hears God's plan, don't you think he thinks it's strange? <laughs> you want us to do what? Okay, well, I have a better plan. Well, okay, can you just imagine the conversation they might have had? Joshua doesn't say, Lord, I already have a plan. No, it goes with God's plan because the simple fact is that it's his plan. As strange as it might seem, God promised this land to the people of Israel and God always keeps his promises. And so as they began the conquest, God would ensure the very first victory would be all the Lord's doing. No one else would get the credit for it. It would be all God's. They didn't have to lift a finger. They had to lift their legs to walk around the city, right? but they didn't have to lift their fingers. They didn't have to do anything. It was all God's. And when God does something great in your life, when he answers a prayer request, maybe when he brings you through a trial or a difficulty, you had better stop and make sure that he gets the credit. Because with him, it would not be possible. Very simple, very simple. The opening victory of the conquest would be entirely the Lord's doing. Israel did nothing. Nothing. Observation number two. Observation number two. Present faith does not guarantee future faith. Okay? Present faith.
does not guarantee future faith. Now, if we go to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, it tells us that by faith, the walls of Jericho came down. So we know that the Israelites exercise faith here. We know they do because the text tells us here in Joshua 6. We know from Hebrews as well as other passages throughout the Old Testament. And the hope is that Israel's faith is tested as they their faith is tested, they come out victorious. And the hope is that this would help strengthen their faith for the future, right? As they go into the conquest, look what God did the very first time. We didn't even have to do anything. Well, we're going to trust God the rest of the way through. However, once you pass the book of Joshua and you head into the dark period of the judges, you soon discover that serving the one true God become a rare, it becomes something that's very rare. And rather than serving the one true God, every man did that which is right in his own eyes. And as much success and victory that Joshua's generation had, they still failed to influence the next generation. You know, it's ironic, isn't it, that when we respond to a great trial in our life with extreme faith, the very next month we're experiencing maybe a much different type of trial, and we throw that faith out the window. Oh, that doesn't help me anymore. As the previous victory doesn't mean anything. It's insignificant. Oh, that was different. We go from one extreme to the next, from one mountain up top of faith to the valley of no faith. For example, last week when uh, Pastor Tim was talking about Elijah, you remember the story of Elijah, and he had this monumental victory with the prophets of Baal, with the, pro- not Baal, Baal, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You know, they had this contest. And, and he literally, I mean, think about the picture here. Elijah literally prays and calls down fire from heaven. How many times do we wish we could do that? <laughs> but he calls down fire from heaven, consumes the, the, the sacrifice, consumes the water. And the prophets of Baal are, 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 are scared to death. I mean, this is the one true God. And Elijah called God And God answered, and he did so in a dramatic way. I mean, in a way that the stuff of legends is made of. And then the very next chapter, Elijah gets word that Jezebel is after him. I'd be scared too. But what does he do? He he tucks his tail between his legs and he runs the other direction. I mean, he just called down fire from heaven on an altar, and the very next chapter, he's scared to death, and he's running the, <laughs> running the opposite way. We do the same thing. Could it be that the same faith we use to get through the first trial is the same kind of faith that's needed for the next trial? Yeah, it could be. It's the very one. Hey, if it worked the first time, maybe we should use it the second time. If it's not broke, right? And we should use it. Sometimes I think we get in trouble by trying to fix things that aren't broken. If it works, then use it the next time. Present faith does not guarantee future faith. It ought to. As you continue to trust God and he uh, answers your prayer and you see your faith growing, it should grow and grow and grow. That's the point. Future faith does not guarantee or excuse me, present faith does not guarantee future faith. Observation number three. The obedience of the Israelites was tested for seven days. 
the obedience of the Israelites was tested for seven days. So the first day, you can imagine the picture, Joshua gives the orders. And the Israelites follow the plan. You know, we want to be careful. We want to follow God's plan down to every detail. Joshua, whatever you tell us. And they go back to their camp. They wonder, well, that was kind of strange. You know, they eat their dinner. They go to bed. The next day they get up ready to take the city. And Joshua issues the same orders as he did the first day. And maybe they scour at Joshua strangely. Joshua says, now this is what the Lord says. This is what God has told me to do. And they trust Joshua and they go around the city a second time, and a third time. And then the fourth day comes and Joshua issues you know, the same order. And the people ask, is this a joke, Joshua? I mean, come on, we've done this four times. Do I have to bring all my family with me? Can we just send one to go? It's such a hassle. Can I leave my kids behind? You know, hurting up all 15 of them takes time. Can I just leave them behind? Can you imagine? No, everyone must come, Joshua says. That's the plan, as strange as it might seem. The fifth day, you can imagine, you know, this is ridiculous, Joshua. Have you been drinking that bad wine again? You know, this is, this is bad. But Joshua urges, says, this is what God has said. This is what he's told me to do. Sixth day comes along, really, Joshua, can you not think of a better plan than the same one we've done for the past five days? And again, Joshua reminds them, this is not my plan, it's God's plan. Remember how God parted the Jordan River just a little while ago? Remember how your parents talked about the parting of the Red Sea? Have a little faith, Joshua says. And the seventh day, finally, finally we get some new orders. It's about time the people say, And as Joshua gives them the orders, they say, wait a minute, what? Now we do it seven times on one day? You want us to do what? You know, the people wanted to take the city. They were eager to take the city. But God's plan was to test their obedience. And for seven days, their obedience was tested. Is the Lord testing your obedience? You know, maybe you've decided, hey, I need to start doing something for the Lord. And maybe you've been convicted about the importance of reading your Bible every day. Maybe you've been hit and miss for a while. And you feel like reading your Bible every day would help you draw closer to him. And today is day 20 and you're struggling. You started to struggle, keeping reading in a priority. You've done it the first thing in the morning. And now it's being pushed to the last thing of the day. And you know that it's not long before it just completely gets dropped off. And you're not getting anything from your reading and you're ready to call it quits. You think the Israelites wanted to call it quits? Would you have marched around the city like that? Maybe that's the question we need to ask. Six times, the same thing every time? You think they were complaining? Absolutely. Often God lets us struggle and sweat so we learn to trust him at a deeper level than even before. And maybe in their obedience, God was teaching the people to endure the scorn and the mockery from the people of Jericho. Think about the people that lived on the city of Jericho in the walls where Rahab lived. What are they thinking about this? Okay, Israel, I'm getting a little weirded out about what you're doing. Because they walk around the city. Think about what they had to endure. Think about this, uh, the things that were probably thrown at them. Maybe the, uh, the, um, the verbal scorn, the mockery from the people of Jericho hurling insults or hurling objects as they passed each day. And remember, the people, they couldn't say anything. 
completely silent. They could not say a word as they marched around the city. Not a word. Maybe God was teaching them to keep their minds focused on him. Six days of silent marching, six days of silent contemplation, silently remembering how the Lord had brought them this far, silently trying to trust him. Like Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And all the chaos of the world, Paul says, we must learn to push away all the distractions and to keep our mind focused on him. Find that place of silence and solitude. And, and solitude so we can fix our minds on Christ and Christ alone. The obedience was tested for seven long days. And that's really strange. Could you have lasted for seven days without saying anything, without complaining at all? It's like one of those things that we always think about. Well, if I were living in Israel at this time, then surely I would have done it differently. Well, knowing what you know now, yeah, of course. So would everybody else. But think about putting yourself in their perspective, not knowing what was going to happen. We have the benefit of looking, and we can see what happened. And we say, what's wrong with you people? If you were put there, you might respond the, seven, the, the same way. Observation number four. Jericho has seven days to surrender. Jericho has seven days to surrender. So lest we think that the conquest was a bloody, holy war with no concern for the souls of mankind, it was not. The very first city the Israelites come to, God offers mercy and he offers grace. And every single day, the inhabitants of the city had a chance to surrender. Every day, God's mercy is rejected. Only Rahab and who we read earlier about her in Joshua 2, were spared. She put her faith in the God of Israel, and God would be merciful to her and to her household. Now, the interesting thing about the conquest is that if you go back just a few books earlier into Genesis, we find an interesting conversation that God has with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God has this conversation with Abraham, and he tells Abraham that after the captivity of the people in Egypt... He would bring them out and use them to judge the Canaanites, the ones who were living inside the land, the inhabitants of Jericho and all those inside the land. He would bring them out to judge the Canaanites. The sins that would cause such judgment of every kind of sexual sin, they were doing infant sacrifices to their gods. And to prevent the Israelites from being tempted to worship these gods, the people living inside the land needed to be destroyed. I know, I know, it doesn't sit well with some people. I know when you think about that, you think about, well, what in the world was God just a God of bloodshed and war in this conquest? Genesis chapter 15, verse 16 was 400 years earlier. 400 years. 400 years. God gave the nations in the land an opportunity to get themselves right. For 400 years, God was merciful and long-suffering to a people that did not deserve mercy, that did not deserve. But yet God still gave it anyway. 400 years. You say that God is not a God of mercy, you look at the Old Testament and you see how long God 
put his people in bondage and slavery in Egypt so that the nations could have a chance to come to repentance. And what about the prophet Jonah? We think about him, don't we? He was reluctant to preach to the Assyrian city of Nineveh, wasn't he? He was very reluctant. And what happens? His preaching actually worked. (laughs) They repented of their deeds, and God spared the city, much to Jonah's dismay. Jonah just wanted them to destroy the city. I don't want to go in here and preach, Lord. I just want you to just get rid of them. However, part two to the book of Jonah comes to us from the book of Nahum, which takes place 140 years later. So once again, 140 years, God extended mercy. He didn't have to. But after that 140 years, the Ninevites are back to their old ways again. You see, in Jonah, God is merciful, but in Nahum, God is the judge. And when we sit back and when we look at our world and the pessimistic side of me tends to focus on the evil that's running around, the chaos, man's sin nature is so pridefully on display. We long for that day when Jesus will return and set everything right and fix everything. And we wonder how much longer, how much longer, Lord, Isn't it time to start the next prophetic event on the calendar, Lord? I mean, come on. Isn't it time to send your son back? Come on. The book of Revelation tells us that Christ will be the judge. It tells us that there is a coming day when he will judge righteously. But let's also remember what the scripture says. God is a merciful God. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For 400 years and seven days, (laughs) right? God was merciful for seven days. Sometimes the strange ways of God that we characterize as impatience are really the mercies of God on full display for the entire world to see. And when I read and study the Old Testament, I see a God of mercy. I see a God of patience, of compassion, of long-suffering. I see a God who's willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that nobody perishes, but that all come to repentance. He can't force an unbeliever to do that. An unbeliever has to make that decision on their own but he is going to give many, many chances for 400 years. Think about that. He let his people go into slavery in Egypt so that the unbelievers in the land could have an opportunity to come to repentance. What did God, look what God sacrificed. Observation number five. God went with his people all 13 times. Because, you know, wait a minute, 13? Yeah, remember six times and seventh day, seven times. Seven and six is 13. That's what my doctoral education comes away with, right? God went with his people all 13 times. God put himself in the middle of the battle plan by having the priest carry the Ark of the Covenant. The ark that carried the Ten Commandments, that carried Aaron's budding rod, uh, that carried the golden pot of manna, you know, that one. The lid was called the mercy seat where the sacrifices for the uh, sins of, the, of, of Israel once a year were offered on that day of atonement, Yom Kippur. It wasn't just any piece of furniture. The ark represented the presence of God. So listen, the presence of the ark circling all 13 times shows them the importance of the presence of God in Every conflict. All 13 times, 
The presence of God was in the middle of the people where it should have been. Is God included in every decision you make, in every battle you face, in every road you take? For the nation of Israel, their conquest, remember, was more of a spiritual battle than it was any kind of physical or any kind of military battle. God was right in the middle. The temptation was to rely on their abilities and not on God. The ark, it symbolized God's presence. That was the key to their success. He went with them. The key to your success is not in your abilities. It's in the fact that it is the presence of God in your life. The very beginning of the book, God commands Joshua, be strong, be courageous. Don't let this book depart out of your mouth, but meditate on it day and night continually so that you will be successful. When God is in the very presence, is in the very middle of your life, success may not be the success that you think is success, but success, prosperous, he says. Thirteen times the ark went with the people of God. Every single time they went out to fight the enemy, God went with them. Every single time. God was with his people every step, literally, literally, every step of the way. Thirteen times the nation of Israel walked around all the walls of Jericho. Not just certain ones, not just the prominent ones, not just the biggest ones, all of them. And when judgment comes on Jericho, all the walls come tumbling down. The walls fell so flat, there was no mistaking, no mistaking the complete deliverance of God's work. Do you think that they thought that, hmm, keeping God the center of my life is going to help us win all the rest of the battles? I think they thought that. Look what God did. 13 is not a bad number anymore, is it? In this text, it's a good number. Don't be superstitious. You know, today, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit that goes with us wherever we go. We don't have to cart around the ark as we travel through. We have access to the very presence of God through prayer. All we have to do is stop and go into his presence. It's much easier because of Christ's sacrifice for us. So if it's so much easier, then what kind of excuse do we have to offer? There is no excuse to offer. If it's so much easier, it was complicated to get the ark and to move it through around the city. What you don't read is probably some of the regulations that were involved with who could touch the ark, who couldn't touch the ark, the priest, and how many steps ahead of the people and all that. It was complicated, but they still did it because they realized that God needed to be in the very center. Do we honestly think that we can do anything, <laughs> accomplish anything without God? Thirteen times God was telling his people that success in life comes only when I am at the very center of everything you do. Thirteen times. Thirteen times. All the time. He was at the very center. Observation number six. Every Israelite participated in the march around Jericho. Everybody had to go. Everybody. Man, women, children, everybody. 
the participating of every Israelite in marching around the city, what does that teach us? It teaches us that there is something for God's people to do in every conflict. Every child, every teenager, every woman, every man, all together, one corporate body of people, silently and quietly and obediently followed this strange, weird, makes no sense, but we're still going to do it plan. I wonder if every child, teenager, woman, and man in our local congregation, if they ensured that God was at the very center of their plan, just think about what God could do through us and with us and in us if we acted like the nation of Israel did on this occasion, keeping God at the very center of everything that we do. You know, God could have just spoken to the walls, right? And the sheer force of his voice could have knocked them down, but he didn't. He uses human instruments. He wants us to live by faith, right? He wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to choose each day to follow him. He wants us to keep him at the center of all of our plans. You know, not only did every Israelite, as they went around the city all together as one, not, did, not only did everybody participate, but everybody, when it came time to shout, shouted. And the walls came crashing down. Every single one participated. If you're here this morning saying, well, it doesn't really matter about my life being right. It really doesn't matter about God being the center of my life. So long as God is the center of the life of the leadership, that's all that matters. If you say that, then you obviously don't know what the Bible says. He has to be the center of everything that you do. It may not look pretty. It may not look good some days. Other days you might feel better about it. <laughs> you know, the Israelites were commanded to take nothing from the spools of Jericho. It says in the text, and why dedicate it all to God? It's because the reward of victory does not belong to man. It belongs to God. You know, it flies in the face of every bit of tradition, convention. Every Israelite would be tempted to loot, wouldn't they? And to plunder for their own selfish ends. Actually, one guy does in chapter 7. You learn about him. His name is Achan. But that's not for the sermon today. But this was God's victory. This was his plan. This was his strategy. And, and, and he's in charge. And when God gives you a great victory, when he answers your prayer, when he does something that you know only can be from him, you better let out a word of praise. You better let out a shout of thanksgiving like the Israelites did when he does something. We must give all the praise, taking none for ourselves. This was all God's. Everything was his. There's probably no point in Israel's history where they exercised more faith than right here in Joshua chapter 6. The previous generation, you remember them? They... <laughs> Wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't believe that God could do what he said he could do. Maybe something's paralyzing your faith today. Living by faith means believing, excuse me, means acting on the believing part. It means, again, taking a step of faith, no matter how uncertain, no matter how hesitant, no matter how small or how scared you might be. It's moving forward. God told the Israelites that the walls of Jericho would fall down, but they still had to do the marching. They still had to do something. Observation number seven. 
God can redeem anything for his glory. God can redeem anything, anything for his glory. The story of Jericho does not end. It sounds like it does, but it does not end in Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua 6, a curse is placed on the city, making it difficult to rebuild it. Verse 26 says that Joshua charged them saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with its firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Now later on in the narrative in 1 Kings, during the reign of Ahab, a man named Hiel, if I can say that right, Hiel of Bethel, he rebuilds Jericho. And like Joshua says, he rebuilds the city at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he sets up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub. Just exactly what Joshua said. Yet in all his goodness and in all his wisdom, God transformed a symbol of cursing into a symbol of blessing. In the New Testament, if you were to go there in Luke, and I don't want you to, but if you were to go there in Luke, you, you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Parable of the Good Samaritan begins with the phrase, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road to Jericho, to that city that was cursed, becomes the very place where love your neighbor is demonstrated in such a powerful way. As Jesus entered Jericho, you've got Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector. Remember him? He has his life transformed by the power of Jesus. And the last verse in that story of Zacchaeus, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That phrase sums up Jesus' mission on earth, to save the lost. And it was spoken, hear me, hear me, it was spoken within the walls of Jericho, of the city itself. God can redeem that which is cursed for a blessing. And that doesn't even talk about the men that uh, Jesus healed in Jericho, blind Bartimaeus and several other, other blind men. The city of Jericho was once a fortress of fear and a city that was cursed, but God redeemed it. It's a city that has become a place of faith and healing as Jesus walked on its streets. You know, you might think that something that's happening in your life right now is a curse. You can't see a way around it. You're burdened with the sheer weight of it. You don't know what to do. And if we know anything about the power of God, we know that he has the ability to take what is cursed and turn it in to something that is blessed. You know, he wants you and I to grow in our faith. He has a plan to help us accomplish it, as strange as that plan might look. But we must have faith in his plan no matter how strange You know, in the New Testament book of James, in James chapter 1, he starts off his book saying that trials and difficulties, these types of things, are designed to grow your faith. Later on, that same chapter, in chapter 1, he talks about only God giving good gifts. God sends these good gifts from above. He reminds us that God only gives good gifts. And what you combine those two together, and what he's saying is that God has given you 
these trials that come into your life, these hard times, these difficulties, these I don't know what to do moments, they are gifts. James says they're a gift to you. But it seems like a lot of the time we don't like those gifts. We don't want those gifts. No, no, I don't want that gift. You keep it. (laughs) For the nation of Israel, Jericho was a gift. A gift designed to strengthen their faith, to show them that he's in control of all things, to show them that the reason for their success in this life is when they put God at the very center of everything that they do. It was a gift designed to help them grow in their faith. And they unwrapped the gift properly, correctly, and they got it. Sometimes when God gives us gifts, we don't want them. We'd rather, you just, you just keep that. I don't want to go through that trial, that difficulty. You just keep that. We want to find a way to get through it really fast, don't we? It's like a kid opening the present really fast on Christmas morning. Just get to the gift real fast. They get to the gift and they're like, oh. Well, it looks so pretty. The paper was so nice. and Well, I'll just play with the box instead of the gift. Because they look at it and say, oh, we don't want the gift. And how many times has God designed these perfect gifts for us? He wraps them. He presents them to us. This is your gift. This is designed to help you grow. And we're excited about it. And we unwrap it. Some of you unwrap it really slowly because this is a gift from God. So you want to be very careful. Others of you tear right through it because this is God's gift. You want to get in it really fast and find out what it is. Then you get to the gift and you're like, oh, thank you. Thank you, God. I appreciate that gift. While all the while you're thinking, oh, man, I hate this thing. I hate this thing. Who can I give this to? Who needs this? Not me. Who needs this gift? You know, maybe God's plan for you right now seems strange. Maybe you say, I know it's supposed to strengthen my faith. I know that God is in control, and I'm trying every day to keep him at the very center of my life, but nothing is happening. It's not working. Maybe it's time to take a page out of Israel's playbook and do what they did. They waited in silent obedience. Israel was silent as they walked around Jericho. It doesn't mean that you have to physically walk around your problem or walk around a person who maybe might be your problem. That would be kind of odd and embarrassing. But wait in silence is what he's saying. Israel was silent as they walked around Jericho. They were waiting for God to give the command, waiting for the shout. Silence doesn't mean he's forgotten you. Hear me, hear me. Silence doesn't mean he's forgotten you. When you're doing everything you know to do, keeping him the very center of everything, always understanding in the back of your mind, yes, he's in control. I know it. I know it. It's his plan. I get that. I get that. I'm waiting. I'm reading. I'm praying. And God is silent. Well, what am I doing wrong? Am I cursed? Silence doesn't mean that he's forgotten you. Silence is all part of the plan. Silence means I trust you, Jesus. Silence means my plan is not yours. Silence means 
what do you want me to learn from it? Maybe today you're going through a hard time and you've done what, everything. You're, you're kind of at your limit. You, you don't know what else to do. Maybe the best thing we can do today is just to be silent and let God speak. Because God's not going to speak. He's not going to yell. He's not going to scream. He's not going to holler. I'll go back to the story of Elijah. The Bible says that God speaks in a still, small voice. And if we're quiet enough, if we get silent before him, we might actually hear his voice. God's plan, Joshua chapter 6, I can't think of a more strange plan, a more unusual plan. But I can't think of a plan that was more all God-oriented than this plan. Maybe today needs to be the day where you sit in silence before the Lord. Maybe today.